a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome to the show. Let's just jump right in with both feet and start in with the wrong think. Now, of course, first thing I have to do is thank my sponsors. I want to add a new sponsor today, Monticello College. Happy to have them on board along with Landmark Risk Management and Insurance and Alta Bank Mortgage. You will find, by the way, detailed contact information in my show notes, which you'll find at thebrianhydeshow.com. I don't know if you get bored. I don't know. A lot of people aren't readers anymore. Screens have kind of spoiled us. And so, you know, given the choice between sitting down and reading a good book, which, believe it or not, I mean, that used to be a thing. Prior to about, what, 1998? Uh, we spent very little time sitting in front of screens, unless maybe the television screen, and, you know, primarily during sports season. But back then, there was, uh, you know, I'm sorry, I feel like the old-timer rambling on, ah, back in those days, you know why we, we talked to people face-to-face, and, and, and if you called somebody and they didn't have an answering machine, you didn't get to talk to them. No way to leave a message. Oh, yeah. And I'm not altogether certain that all the conveniences we have right now are necessarily uh, representative of an upshift in quality of life. Some things have gotten better, certainly more convenient. I don't think people treat each other as well as they did. You know, when you actually talk to people face to face, or at least that was the primary way of, you know, communicating with people. Nonetheless, welcome to the show. We've got a lot of great stuff to cover in this hour. Um, one of the things that I'm hearing from from people all around me, that, look, it doesn't matter what political you know slant they may happen to have. A common theme that I'm hearing from the people who I care about most, these are the folks I'm interacting with, you know, on a day to day basis. Is how can we stop what appears to be coming? How can we how can we stop this building crisis? How can we help things snap back to normal. And I mean, you can't blame anybody for wishing for things just to, to settle down and, and go back to, to something that's familiar and comfortable and doesn't feel like, like it's so threatening. And it does. It feels today. Things just feel very threatening. Anything you post on social media, you know, could come back to haunt you maybe years down the road. You don't even have to be doing anything. You can be driving your car. You can be sitting, enjoying the meal and someone will come up and demand Stand and do the salute with me. And if you don't do it, you're in physical danger. But the bad news, and I think we should probably just get this out of the way right up front, is nothing is going to stop it. No one is coming to save us. Politicians, I, you know, I think I've been pretty consistent in my message that if you put your faith in a politician, you're going to be disappointed. I still stand by that. And that's, that's not a put down for people who have put their faith in politicians. We've all been there. We've all been in that situation where I want to believe what they're saying is so convincing. I think this one might be different. But it's the nature of politics itself. The person may actually mean well. The, the politician, the person who runs for office. You know, I can't tell you how many people I've met who attained public office with the very best of intentions and... And yet, after being in it just for a short time, 
you know, they're they're almost shell shocked and they realize there's there's a way that things are done. Once you're part of that political system, there's just a way that things are done. And I believe as the power, you know, the, the, the amount of power goes up, the stakes go up. And I believe the corruption that can take place becomes much, much more pronounced. There's a lot more at stake. There, there are literally fortunes to be made with the right connections. And that's not something people are going to take lightly. I mean, they or maybe even, you know, their, their generations of their family have worked to maintain these relationships and to maintain their, their advantage. So things have been set in motion that you and I do not have the power to stop. And that's okay, at least politically. That, that means that there are some things politics just won't fix. I saw this article today on the Mises Wire. This is from the Mises Institute, M-I-S-E-S dot org. Politics won't fix the American decline. Zachary Yost is the author. He makes some really great points here. This is not to tell you that you're dumb if you get engaged in politics. You're not. I'm, I'm assuming you're probably getting involved for the right reasons. Now, on the other hand, if you're getting involved in politics because you have had a taste of power and you liked it. Okay, I'm not a supporter of that. You should go sit somewhere and think about what you want to do. Power seekers, unfortunately, are attracted to politics. But most people, I think, just, uh, you know, they really believe, no, it's supposed to work for us. It's supposed to help us do what we can't. Well, just because politics won't fix the decline that I think most people would admit is taking place right in front of us, that doesn't mean that we can't get our own lives, our own homes, our own communities in order. But we have to get used to this idea that it cannot come from the top down. And unfortunately, that's kind of what politics uh, engenders is this idea that, well, we get Joe Biden in there in the presidency and everything's going to be great. Fifteen dollar minimum wage and, you know, mask mandates and vaccines for everyone. And it just doesn't work that way. You want to see things, you know, start to become normal. You're going to have to seize that normalcy at the individual level. Here's what Zachary Yost has to say. He says, by any measure, 2020 was not a very good year for human freedom. By now, everyone's very familiar with the assaults on liberty stemming from measures ostensibly in the name of stopping the spread of COVID and the way in which such measures have threatened the very existence of the social order. But he says, beyond such obscene and unprecedented measures, 2020 also demonstrated that the leaders of our society are truly incompetent and bungling. He says the ineptitude is truly staggering, even for critics, even for skeptics, rather, of the state. And he's right. Those of us who thought, no, there's no way they would. We were wrong. They would go there. They would do that. Zachary Yost says when surveying the wreckage of last year, one can't help but feel a sense of dread and apprehension for the long term health of our civilization. It's not only the state and its myriad of pathetic politicians and power mad bureaucrats who are cause for concern. Culturally, he points to the woke madness that's been spreading like malignant cancer throughout the body politic. Churches, universities, large companies, cultural institutions have increasingly come under the sway of reality-denying woke ideology. Now, he says, no doubt that a few hundred years in the future, some enterprising author will make a fortune humorously documenting all of the culturally accepted absurdities of our era. But unfortunately, they're not so amusing to those of us forced to endure them. Now, 2021 has opened with even more chaos and uncertainty as a riotous mob supporting Trump stormed the Capitol building. 
This crazed lunacy has only furthered the idea that we are on the decline, not to mention that it will serve as a convenient excuse for any number of further government crackdowns. In short, disorder reigns. Andrew Yost says, looking around at the wreckage and continued decay of our society, it's easy to become discouraged and even to begin to feel desperate. He says in such desperation, it may seem necessary to redouble our efforts to affect political change and save the country from its present disastrous course. But he says, while a position, while such a position is easy to understand, he says, I would posit that perhaps trying to roll back the state via electoral victory, which is what Friends of Liberty have consistently failed to do for decades, is not a viable strategy and that it's actively contributing to the problem. While it's popular and accurate to blame our societal elites for being pathetic and inept, he says the truth is that these leaders, both political and cultural, are reflections of us. Leaders who do not reflect the character of the people they lead will not be leaders for long. In the final accounting, he said, it is not the words written down on the parchment of the Constitution that governed the United States. Rather, the true Constitution of a people is the one that's written in their hearts. A badly written constitution will not be an obstacle to a virtuous and ordered people, just as the most brilliantly organized constitution will not save an unvirtuous and disordered people. I don't know about you, but that last line, that kind of stung. Maybe I'm the only one who needed to hear that, but I, I think he's absolutely right. Andrew Yost says, perhaps in the same way that the central government has sapped more and more of the strength and social power from all other institutions of social life, it has also sapped our attention and energies from where they truly belong. He asks, to what extent have efforts to stop the government merely made its job easier, leading us to neglect our families, churches, and communities? To what extent has it made us neglect our very own cultivation of virtue? Now, maybe this isn't what you wanted to hear. Maybe you were, you know, maybe you tuned in today thinking uh, Brian's going to talk about the latest, latest big scare. What's the next thing we should be scared of? And if you're listening close, what you're hearing me say is maybe we should be scared of our own individual lack of virtue. More so than uh, the wholesale, you know, corruption that we're seeing come to light in Washington, D.C. and elsewhere. Well... I admit it's a bitter truth, but I think it's one we need to acknowledge if we want to really make things change. we got to start by changing us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. By the way, phone lines are open, 801-331-8113. I'm sharing a, an article here from Andrew Yost, and it talks about how politics will not fix America's decline. And I look, I know that is, that is like not very good news. You'd think I would start out with some, you know, some kind of good news to, to soften the blow. Well, on the bright side, it's not raining, but... But the truth of the matter is there's there is a lot of decline that's taking place. And and unless you think, you know, all hope is lost, we've been through cycles where this has played out before. 
We've seen it happen in other civilizations. It's actually happened here in American civilization. These are called turnings, and we are going through the very difficult part of one. The one that uh, where the biggest changes are likely to take place. I don't care how stalwart you are. I don't care how stiff your upper lip is. That's going to be scary. Change is always scary. And right now the stakes seem to be incredibly high. So when it comes to changing things, what uh, Andrew Yang is saying is, uh, look, we we need to... Uh, or Andrew Yost, rather. Sorry, that was a that was an unfortunate. It's Zachary Yost, and and unfortunately, I've just compared him to somebody who's running, I think, for governor of New York, New York. Nonetheless, we need to start at the local level, and I like how in the he, he cites from the first chapter of the Art of War by Sun Tzu. Sun Tzu counsels that if the enemy is in superior strength, evade him, attack him where he's unprepared, appear where you are not expected. Constantly attempting to seize the power of the state in order to reduce it has been attacking the enemy where he's strong and engaging on his terms. Zachary says, in a sense, we've let the central government determine the battlefield. Political power is not the only repository of power in society. Yet we've chosen to to constantly engage the state in that sphere, and we've consistently lost. Even supposed victories tend to be rear guard holding actions to delay rather than defeat. He says, I would suggest the time has come to consciously turn to an alternative strategy of cultivating social power outside of the state apparatus. And he says such an effort is likely to lead to much more success, although that is a low bar since the current strategy has led to no success at all. Unlike federal electoral politics, it begins with something entirely and completely under one's control. Oneself. He says the key to cultivation of alternative poles of social power begins with order, specifically the ordering of one's own life. Now, this is not an idea original to him. He says Canadian psychologist Jordan Peterson has recently popularized this idea in a secular manner with his refrain of clean your room. Less recently, though, in a far more sophisticated manner that recognizes man's spiritual nature, political theorist Eric Vogelin has written voluminously about modern chaos as stemming from internal disorder that is the result of man's loss of connection to the engendering experiences that serve to capture the truth of reality, the end result of which is the rise of totalitarian ideologies. Instead of a more traditional concern with cultivating oneself, with looking after the beam in one's own eye, modern man has become obsessed with everyone else on the planet. Even friends of human liberty have fallen prey to this tendency from time to time. In our excessive investment of time and attention to political issues far removed from our actual lived existence. And in doing so, we've neglected to build up alternative bases of social power in our families and communities. Let me give you an example of what this looks like real quick. Um, I think it was my son was asking me, are you planning on doing anything for the inauguration next week? And my answer is uh, no. No, actually, I'm not. In the sense that I, what was I going to do? Sit back and watch it? It's, it's, I mean, they have 20,000 troops in Washington, D.C. This is supposed to be a virtual inauguration. And you know what? This is, this is the thing. Even if it was Donald Trump being inaugurated for the second time next week, I still really wouldn't have the interest in watching. Why? Because that pageantry and what's going it doesn't mean as much to me as it might have at another time. 
So what the political class wants to do, their their oh-so-important rituals and so forth, yeah, they're, they're free to do it. I wish them well, but it has, so, it has so little relation to anything that's going on in my life. I don't really care. I'm not saying that you should feel that way. I'm just telling you, for me, it just doesn't hold any thrill that would, would draw me to a screen so I could sit and watch and be a part of it. Their concerns are not my concerns. Now, going back to the article here, and again, Zachary Yost, you know, talks about the, the importance of getting yourself in order, building up those alternative bases of social power in your family, in your community, as opposed to trying to let government be the one that fixes all of them. He says one may respond that it is all well and good to order oneself, but that it's not enough or even pointless in the face of the wider chaos that's engulfing the rest of society. However, he says it may be that such self-ordering is, in fact, the only thing that restores order to the rest of society. Philosopher Irving Babbitt argued that there may be something, after all, in the Confucian idea that if a man only sets himself right, the rightness will extend to his family first and finally in widening circles to the whole community. I really believe that is a correct pattern. And in fact, coming up uh, next Tuesday, I will be uh, joined by Alexandra Hudson, who uh, she's going to join me for a couple of segments on Tuesday's show. And we're going to talk about the impact that one family member with really solid character can have for generations within a particular family line. I've seen it within my own family. I want to be the kind of individual who has the kind of character that can be felt or respected or that inspires other family members to live up to that measure of personal goodness. It's not a competition, you understand? It's not about, oh, well, you're even holier than Uncle Joe there. No, it's, it's more a matter of because this forebear of mine conducted themselves with, with honor, I want to continue that tradition. I want to be an honorable individual. Not because I need rewards or I need, you know, a constant, uh, you know, reinforcement and petting and adoration by society, but because that is how a truly great society is built, by good people. Just continuing to be good people in whatever their respective spheres are. When you're dealing with good people, the whole of society benefits. Zachary Yost says, if dark and illiberal days truly are ahead, it seems reasonable to consider that at least as a possibility, then these localized bastions of ordered liberty will become more important than ever. Perhaps instead of letting strangers into state schools and who knows what kind of wackos on the Internet raise one's children, now is the time to take the plunge into homeschooling or at the very least invest time in their education and moral upbringing. Perhaps now's the time to develop friendly relations with one's neighbors and to begin attending local township meetings. Perhaps now is the time to begin to invest one's time and energy in what the sociologist Robert uh, Nisbet called the intermediary groups and associations that serve as a buffer between the state and the solitary and weak individual. This is not to say that federal politics should be ignored completely. The federal government is impossible to ignore thanks to the immense power it wields. But he says such engagement must not come at the cost of those areas of life that are truly under one's control. Disorder increasingly reigns across the land, 
and with disorder inevitably comes oppression and the curtailment of our traditional rights and liberties. The restoration of order begins with oneself and one's home. Societal order will not be restored until order is restored in the hearts of those who make up the society. Even if the pessimists are correct and our country's too far advanced down the path of decay and collapse that every other empire has trodden in history, the cultivation of personal order is still imperative for survival in the dark and chaotic days to come. I know that's an ominous, ominous line to end on, but what he's saying actually fills my heart with hope because it's something that you and I actually have control over. And we should rejoice for that. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. 801-331-8113. So if you're new to uh, the the pro- to the broadcast or the podcast, uh, we do we do carry this hour live on Salt Lake City Radio and uh, of course on on other great platforms all across this country. And it's 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 very humbling and it's exciting to add new listeners to to our podcast audience as well as to our live audience. Um, if you're just joining us, I just want you to know I don't claim to have all the answers. I may have some strong opinions and I may seem very, well, you're very confident in how you're stating this. But above all, what I'm trying to do is just speak the truth to the best of my understanding, leaving it up to you as to whether or not you accept it or not. You're not going to hurt my feelings if you say, yeah, that just doesn't convince me. That's fine. All I'm offering is hopefully something that provides a little broader vantage point than what you currently enjoy. And maybe it's one that we already share. In that case, it's, it's great to have you. Hopefully you'll hear some things that reinforce what you already knew to be true. But for people who are just starting to wake up to what's taking place around us, they sense that something is very serious and they want to try to make sense of it. And I'm trying to do the best I can, um, having been paying as close attention and learning every step of the way for about the last 25 years. Now, again, that doesn't mean I have the answers. I'm just telling you, I started focusing about 25 years ago, and I've learned a lot. There's a lot of truth that has come into my life that has caused me to have to go, ooh, I'm going to have to rethink what I have always believed about this because I've been presented with information that appears to update and supersede it. This much I do know. There are some places where you really cannot compromise. And keeping government within its proper limits is one of those areas that uh, always will bring regret if you rationalize it away. Case in point, September 11th, 2001. Can you believe we're coming up on the 20-year anniversary a little bit later this year? And the Patriot Act that followed, which to a lot of people seemed like a no-brainer in the sense that, well, we've been attacked and we've got to do something. We need to make sure this never happens again. Notwithstanding that there were dozens, if not hundreds, of laws and regulations which expressly forbid all of the combined things that happen, but they still happened. It's not like somebody found a legal loophole and, well, see, it doesn't say here that you can't fly an airliner into a building. Anyway, it's a power grab. And I think I think quite a few people recognized it at the time. But the vast majority of people, because they were scared, because they were angry embraced it as, well, we have to do something 
better to err on the side of doing something than to do nothing at all. And now, because of the precedent that has been established that, well, when there's an emergency, we've got to, you know, give the government some extra powers, let it snoop around, let it look at, you know, your, your conversations and keep tabs on what you're doing. And, oh, I don't know, see where you get your money, what you spend it on. Nothing big, bro. So now we've got Patriot Act 2.0 lining up in the wings. This is because of the violence at the Capitol last week. Except I've never seen the hysteria pushed harder than I'm seeing it pushed right now. There was a lot of reason for people to be in anguish following September 11th. I mean, come on, nearly 3,000 people, most all of them innocent people, lost their lives That was pretty tragic. We watched a couple of historic landmarks come down. Yeah, it was it was an attention getter, to put it mildly. And it changed a lot of families lives and a lot of people's lives irreversibly. What happened last week at the Capitol? You know, I I hear it being described in terms of terrorism and insurrection, sedition and all the all the words that politicians like to throw around when they're really serious. But what I see right now is an excuse to engage in even greater authoritarianism. J.D. Seal, writing for uh, Reason.com, just comes right out and says it. Don't let the Capitol riot become a 9-11 style excuse for authoritarianism. He says, after the 9-11 terrorist attacks, horrified Americans were ready to embrace virtually any proposal that promised to keep them safe. Government officials, for their part, were eager to curry favor with the fearful public, and they saw an opportunity to promote legislation and policies that had failed to win support in the past. That's the kicker. For those who don't know, the Patriot Act largely was already written. It was a wish list of things. Well, I wish we could do this, and it would sure make it easier for us to keep tabs on the people like this. So just a big, emotion-laden, fearful event had to happen Boom. Well, we just happen to have this. What if we were to go ahead and sign that and this will make you safe? There it was. But it was all stuff that had been just waiting in the wings for the right event with enough emotional leverage to get it passed. And the result, says J.D. Tussil, was a surge of authoritarianism from which the U.S. has yet to recover. Now, with the public understandably concerned about the January 6th storming of the Capitol, He says we should brace ourselves for another wave of political responses that would again erode our liberty. AOC told her Instagram followers this week, we're going to have to figure out how we can rein in our media environment so you can't just spew disinformation and misinformation. She said it's one thing to have differing opinions, but it's another thing entirely to say things that are false. So that's something we're looking into. Now, she isn't always careful about her words, points out J.D. Tussil. But it's worrying when officials talk about a need to rein in the media in any context, because there's really no way to cast government action to that end in a good light, no matter what policy tools are intended. And by the way, AOC's office apparently hasn't responded to a request for comment to let government agencies rein in the media is to put control over speech and the press in the hands of people who always see benefit in less scrutiny and criticism of their own activities. That free speech might well take a hit is apparent from the pasting law enforcement is getting for allegedly being too considerate of First Amendment rights before events at the Capitol. 
NBC News reported on Tuesday, FBI intelligence analysts gathered information about possible violence involving the U.S. Capitol on January 6th, but the FBI never distributed a formal intelligence bulletin, in part because of concerns that doing so might have run afoul of free speech protections. Now, the report goes on to reveal that in preparing for the protest that degenerated into a riot, the FBI did share intelligence with other law enforcement agencies, neglecting only to issue a formal joint intelligence bulletin. But the overall impression left by NBC and by the -the behind-the-scenes leaks from officialdom, on which its reporting is based, are that respect for free speech somehow got in the way. Since then, the FBI has made up for lost time, issuing a bulletin highlighting the threat of violence from a range of ideologically diverse extremists. The danger is real, as the violence of January 6th demonstrated, but so is the danger of an unrestrained federal agency with a history of interference in domestic policy debates, spying on activists, even trying to sabotage political parties, revealed in great detail by the 1976 Church Committee report. An FBI stung for being too respectful of individual rights in the recent past may return to its old habits in the future. Now, in its efforts, the FBI and its alleged agencies are almost certain to have the support of the new president. After the storming of the Capitol, President-elect Joe Biden was harsh in his description of the participants. Don't dare call them protesters, he said. They were a riotous mob, insurrectionists, domestic terrorists. It's that basic. It's that simple. Now, Biden's choice of language is is interesting because even before the election, his campaign had promised to work for a domestic terrorism law, an idea reportedly favored by his close advisors. What a new law would look like isn't clear, but Biden has a history with such legislation. After the 9-11 attacks, Biden claimed the authorship of the Patriot Act, which has been much criticized for the damage it does to civil liberties in the name of combating foreign terrorism. I drafted a terrorism bill after the Oklahoma City bombing, he told the New Republic in October 2001, and the bill John Ashcroft sent up was my bill. Now, the uses to which the Patriot Act has been put since its passage should be warning enough to be wary of any legislation proposed in response to the events of January 6th. The American Civil Liberties Union summarizes the Patriot Act was the first of many changes to surveillance laws that made it easier for the government to spy on ordinary Americans by expanding the authority to monitor phone and email communications, collect bank and credit reporting records, and track the activity of innocent Americans on the Internet. They say while most Americans think it was created to catch terrorists, the Patriot Act actually turns regular citizens into terrorist suspects. This is really a debate about the standard our government should have to meet in order to obtain personal information about individuals from banks, hospitals, libraries, real retail stores, uh, gun shops, and other institutions. That's according to Senator Ron Wyden from Oregon, arguing about the ongoing controversies around the Patriot Act back in 2011. Government agents should not be able to collect this sort of information on law-abiding American citizens without showing that they have at least some connection to terrorism or other nefarious activities. And yet 20 years after its passage, the Patriot Act still lingers on, still threatening civil liberties. Got to take a quick break. We'll do that. We'll be back just the other side of these messages.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. 801-331-8113 if you'd like to call in and join the conversation. I'm going to leave the article from J.D. Tusil on the show notes. You can get the rest of it at thebrianhydeshow.com. Look for the show notes for January 15th. Got a couple other different uh, things I wanted to share. Um, we live in what I have heard referred to as the post-truth era. And I'm going to admit, I, I've never really heard that phrase before, but there's an excellent commentary from Anders Koskinen, and this is published on intellectualtakeout.org. There is no monopoly on post-truth. Now, post-truth America apparently is an entirely conservative construct. In this world, masks don't work, and Ukraine has the DNC server. This, I think this is an article by, uh, is it Jennifer Rubin? Yeah, Jennifer Rubin wrote an op-ed for the Washington Post, and this is how she describes post-truth America. Post-truth America, masks don't work, Ukraine has the DNC server, white evangelicals tell their flocks there's a war on Christians, radio talk show hosts tell us there are terrorists among refugees fleeing violence in Central America, there's a whole industry extending to issue-oriented advocacy groups and think tanks designed to con the mob and infuriate them. And you know what? There's a there's an element of truth to what she's saying, but there's also some pretty healthy spin. Anders Koskinen says that's an interesting selection of issues and talking points. However, he says there are an additional set of claims that ought to be included as a complement to Rubin's list. The post-truth American society is also one in which gender is a spectrum of feeling rather than a biological fact. Journalists claim that America was founded in 1619 for the purpose of creating the slave trade. Professors tell us that all white people are complicit with racism, and that statement is somehow accepted rather than decried as being racist itself. There's a whole industry extending to identitarian movements, progressive think tanks, and apologetic and coddling mass media programs designed to enable and excuse the mob, no matter how many cities they burn or how ill-founded their reasons for doing so are. Post-Truth America is one in which protesters chanting, Not my president in 2016 were legitimately airing grievances. But in 2021, Rubin argues that lawyers engaged in litigation regarding potential election fraud in 2020 should be punished by bar associations. In addition, lawmakers who objected to the certification of the election need to be identified for as long as they participate in public life. Someone is really determined they don't want people asking questions about this I'm just putting the question out there if the truth is on your side do you have to try to silence anybody who has a differing point of view because if truth is that if is really that fragile maybe it's not the truth after all anyway it's a great piece and Anders Koskinen concludes by saying it doesn't matter who engages in post-truth statements, nor how often they do, nor how egregious the post-truth statements themselves actually are. He says with the liberal bias of newsrooms, that rhetoric will continue to be that media bias, that media bias rather is non-existent and that post-truth doublespeak is solely the domain of far-right ideologues who need to be ostracized from polite society. 
That's not the truth, but that is the post-truth spin that uh, people like Jennifer Rubin, the Washington Post, and other liberal politicos and media personalities want everyone to believe. Anders Koskinen says to restore truth, uh, to restore America rather, to a truth-valuing society, we must eliminate all post-truth statements, not just the ones we're predisposed to find repulsive based on our own political preferences. You hear what he's saying here? That means you police your own side as well. And when someone is pushing conspiracy theories that detract from the credibility of your side, maybe you should say something. He says to favor one side over the other in this regard will only drag the country further into a post-truth society where newspeak becomes America's first official language. Interesting. I'm just finding it amazing how many terms used by uh, by George Orwell have found their way into our lexicon and they fit double think wrong think new speak Orwell was definitely ahead of his time all right one final article that I wanted to share with you I don't know if you have had the question in your mind well who should be regulating big tech we clearly learned within the last seven days that big tech has a lot more power than people gave them credit for and their summary uh, execution or destruction of parlor just to show that we can do this to you if we want to. It was a pretty good demonstration. I think a lot of people got the message. But I love how Carrie McDonald from the Foundation for Economic Education takes just a slightly different view. Her article is titled, Families, Not the Government, Should Regulate Big Tech. And she has five ideas for turning action into agency regarding big tech and social media. I think these are really solid suggestions. Someone asks, well, what can we do as individuals and families? What should we do about the ways social media and technology might be influencing, for instance, our lives, our perceptions, the minds of our children and our teens? And she references the movie, I believe it's The Social Dilemma which pulls the curtain back on a lot of things that are going on with social media, how it can manipulate you, how the media, the social media algorithms keep us engaged, how artificial intelligence helps to make that happen. Sometimes we even become addicted, checking our smartphones, browsing our Instagram feeds. She says, understanding the subtle ways in which these technologies and platforms work is important so that we can choose our actions more wisely. Individual human action, not government regulation, can help us maximize the benefits of technology and social media while also minimizing their drawbacks. Ludwig von Mises wrote in Human Action, a treatise on economics, human action is purposeful behavior. Or we may say action is will put into operation and transformed into agency. Is aiming at ends and goals is the ego's meaningful response to stimuli and to the conditions of its environment is a person's conscious adjustment to the state of the universe that determines his life. So here are five suggestions that Carrie McDonald offers in how you and your family should be regulating big tech rather than waiting for government to do it for you. Number one, she says, understand the algorithms. Recognize how social media algorithms work to keep us on these platforms and to select what we see and don't see. And then talk about these processes with our kids. Understanding how we're being influenced can help us take more control of our social media usage. Secondly, she says, be discerning. 
As consumers, we pick and choose from a variety of social media platforms and give our time and attention to those we most value. For example, after President Trump was banned from Twitter, the company's stock price plummeted as conservative users fled the platform. If we don't like a company's practices, we can leave. Our consumer actions are significant. Number three, she says, explore and invent alternatives. Despite claims that big tech is monopolistic and therefore must be regulated, there are already many alternatives. TechCrunch reported this week that social networks such as MeWe and CloudHub are booming. Entrepreneurs continue to invent new social networking products and services that meet changing consumer demand. Government regulation of big tech could actually stifle competition. For instance, executives at large social media companies like Facebook are asking to be regulated, setting up roadblocks for smaller companies to enter the market. Number four, she says, set guidelines and limits. We can establish healthy parameters for our own use of technology and social media and help our children do the same. Psychologist and author Jonathan Haidt recommends that that parents wait until their children are high school age before they get access to social media. Whoops. <laughs> I'm going to have to show this one to my wife. On the other hand, she says, I find the argument made by psychologist and author Jordan Shapiro more compelling. He suggests that it can be better to introduce technologies to children earlier when parents have more influence over children and can better help them navigate these tools. Parents, of course, are the ones who know their children best and can decide what technology approach works well for their children and teens. Number five, prioritize in-person interaction. Lockdowns and pandemic policies have cut us off physically from each other and could contribute to some of the social unrest from the past several months. Prioritizing in-person interactions for ourselves and our children and teens is crucial, whether that's prioritizing family time, eating dinner together, gathering with friends, or taking a walk with neighbors. Researchers have found that during lockdowns, nearly half of young adults showed, a signs, showed signs of depression and younger children's mental health has deteriorated substantially. She says parents can encourage their children and teens to see friends in person rather than just on screens. I like this. This is probably one of the most empowering articles I've seen all week long. And the idea is government doesn't need to protect us. We can protect ourselves and our children by better understanding how social media influences us and then by taking action as individuals and as families. This is The Brian Hyde Show.